Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a new Jacobin podcast that'll be going out every two weeks, looking in depth at political topics and thinkers, both contemporary and historical. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Over the coming weeks, you'll hear about topics ranging from the Korean War to the Arab uprisings, and about thinkers like Albert Camus and Eric Fromm. In many ways, the last year has been a breakthrough for public awareness of the climate crisis. We've seen a major protest movement spearheaded by young people, taking action in many different parts of the world. We've seen left-wing politicians in countries like Britain and the United States put forward ambitious plans for ecological transformation. And we've seen clear evidence that climate change is not merely something to worry about in the future. It's already with us. The terrifying wildfires in Australia and California have been a reminder that the effects of climate change won't be confined to the global south. Of course, public awareness is not enough in itself to bring about change. We've known the basic scientific facts about global warming for a long time. As a reminder of that, here's a clip from Carl Sagan in 1990, setting out the scientific consensus and calling for governments to act. We burn fossil fuels like uh, coal and gas and petroleum, putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and thereby heating the earth. The hellish conditions on Venus are a reminder that this is serious business. Computer models that successfully explain the climates of other planets predict the deaths of forests, parched croplands, the flooding of coastal cities, environmental refugees, widespread disasters in the next century, unless we change our ways. What do we have to do? Four things. One, much more efficient use of fossil fuels. Uh, Why not cars that get 70 miles a gallon instead of 25? Two, research and development on safe alternative energy sources, especially solar power. Three, reforestation on a grand scale. And four, helping to bring the billion poorest people on the planet to self-sufficiency, which is the key step in curbing world population growth. Every one of these steps makes sense apart from greenhouse warming. Our guest today for a discussion on the politics of climate change is Adrienne Buller. Adrienne is a senior research fellow at Commonwealth, the British progressive think tank, where her work focuses on the link between finance and the climate crisis. The first question I wanted to ask you was about the idea of a pandemic silver lining, which was something that people were expressing very much in the early stages of the pandemic and the lockdown that was imposed right across the developed world, that there might be a silver lining in this, at least for the climate crisis, that because of the involuntary shutdown of transport systems and in particular of air travel, it might lead to a significant fall in carbon emissions and that could give us some breathing room with the targets that are supposed to be met for 2030. Um, we're now nearly six months into this general lockdown. Could you say a little about what we now know about the picture of, of the effect that it's had on emissions? Yeah, definitely. So this is something that I, I wrote about back uh, in April when the first sort of peer-reviewed study of this was released. And it showed that to that point in the year, we'd seen about a 17% drop in emissions around the world relative to the previous year. And in some developed countries like the UK, it was closer to 30% where they were quite stringent lockdown emissions in place. And at that point, they sort of projected that over the course of the full year, we'd be looking at something like a 7.5% drop, which put us roughly in line with the sort of figure that we need every year 
for the next decade, according to the IPCC, to remain within the one and a half degree target. So on the one hand, it was the largest single year fall in emissions, but it just sort of got us on track to where we need to be every year for the next decade to be on track for the 1.5 target. A few months down the line, we're now sort of, you know, I think people have been surprised by just how quickly emissions have bounced back. So we're now looking at about a 5% year on year drop uh, from the previous year, which, you know, again, won't really be enough uh, to get us to where we need to be from from a global target perspective. Um, And I think the really important thing here is that a lot of the sort of silver lining takes came out of big flashy headline figures um, like the 17% one. But it's important to remember when it comes to climate change that what matters is, you know, I used a, a bathtub analogy. What matters is how full the tub is as opposed to how fast the tap is going, really. So we sort of slightly turned down the tap, but the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is still immense and has a huge time lag. And so we're looking at a pretty negligible overall impact this year of about like 0.01 degrees Celsius that's sort of been slowed by that by that process. It does give the lie, doesn't it, to the idea that you could address the climate crisis in some kind of meaningful way through individual consumer choices and behaviour, the idea of people being conscious about their carbon footprint. Yeah, I think it really underscored, you know, just how structurally embedded so much of our emissions profile is, right? So we've never seen kind of a disruption to GDP and the global economy like we have through the COVID lockdowns. And yet, you know, so many parts of our lives, whether it's electricity production or commercial shipping, as opposed to individual transport, agriculture, deforestation, all of these things kind of continue a pace. And that is something that requires a much more significant and deliberate shift in underlying systems rather than just a shutdown. And, you know, the cruel irony of some of these things is that deforestation, for example, has actually just absolutely soared during the lockdown because as other parts of the economy are hit, people have turned to resource extraction in a new way to sort of make up for that. So deforestation is up you know, 77% over the average for the past three years directly as a result of the lockdown. So it's a much more nuanced situation than just people are driving their cars less because they're not going to work and that that's enough. You know, looking ahead a little to the more long-term perspective and the kind of changes that might come about as a result of the pandemic, even if we do have a vaccine discovered in a reasonably short time frame and the formal lockdown or slowdown measures can be phased out, one of the things that people have speculated about is a shift in patterns of work and the normalisation on the part of companies in having much of their staff not needing to come into the office and being able to work from home at least part of the time. That's one long-term shift, but there are others that we could think of, of course. What effect do you think that is likely to have on the climate crisis? Is there a silver lining on that front as well? Yeah, so again, it's it's really hard to know because on the one hand, you know, we're seeing clear suggestions that people will be working from home more and that could have an impact. But on the other hand, you know, we've actually seen among people that do need to to travel, to go into work, et cetera, because of public health restrictions, you know, a lot of people where they can are using public transport less. Um, and that's contributed to some of the bounce back we've seen. So I think, again, it comes back to what will matter in this instance is frankly, the sort of recovery programs that we see will matter, I think, much, much more than sort of the changes to working habits, although those those do matter. But ultimately, you know, green stimulus packages, what we're doing with bailouts, 
what we're looking with generally re-stimulating the economy, all of that will have a much, much larger impact on the sort of legacy of COVID for global emissions. And the outlook for that thus far isn't isn't great. Yeah, that leads straight on to the next question that I, I was going to ask you that we do now have some picture of what the long term plans are for economic recovery in the major industrial states in the US, in Europe, in China and so on. What can we say about those plans? Do any of them take account of the urgency of the climate crisis and the potential opportunities to use economic recovery and stimulus programmes to promote decarbonisation? Or is it very much a case of governments wanting to get back to business as usual? Yeah, so I think it's been interesting because I actually have been surprised by just how much the idea of a green recovery and the idea of building back better, for example, has been adopted as a mainstream frame. I think whether it's the Biden campaign or whether it's the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, frankly, in the UK, that was you know, taken up as a mantle very, very quickly. Now, whether that's been reflected in the actual policy decisions is another question altogether. So while in the UK, for example, we looked at, I think it was about a three billion green recovery type stimulus that looked at sort of insulating houses, et cetera. It's sort of a a tiny fraction of what we actually need. A lot of it is reshuffled manifesto commitments that have just sort of been brought forward a little bit. And a lot of the bailout process has involved completely no strings attached cash for really carbon intensive companies and industries, the sort of COVID corporate financing facility, which is in partnership with the Bank of England um, to bail out sort of large corporates, about a fifth of that has gone to sort of automotives, fossil fuels, and and aviation. I think about 10% alone is to airline companies with no requirements, you know, not only to hold on to staff, but to look at things like decarbonization targets. And the story is really similar elsewhere. So the G20 as a whole has committed about £120 billion in bailout cash so far to support fossil fuels. A group that I used to work for called Influence Map has tracked the Federal Reserve's um, bond buying program and found that it's extremely overweight in fossil fuel bonds, even those that are sort of rated as as junk investment grade. And there's also been a huge surge in, in lobbying with some successes to roll back environmental regulations, which companies are arguing are punitive for their survival under the context of a pandemic. So Unfortunately, the outlook there hasn't been hasn't been so promising. And the reality is that these decisions now are going to be the ones that really make a difference long term for emissions. So there was a study that was released that looked at, you know, the potential of green recovery stimulus to get us on track for one and a half degrees. And the only one that sort of gets us close was the strong scenario that the researchers used. And that looked at about one point two percent of global GDP being invested in stimulus. and, And we're a long way off from that. Um, and that was the only one that sort of gets us in line. So thus far, optimism is low, I suppose. Although the adaptation of the frame is, I suppose, encouraging in some respects. Yeah. Well, we're on the theme of, of optimism being low. <laughs> Over the last few months, while people have probably been preoccupied, understandably so, with the pandemic and, and all the politics surrounding it, there have been some deeply alarming news reports about the latest scientific findings about the loss of ice in Greenland or in the South and so on. And perhaps people have seen those headlines and maybe read the first paragraph or two of the stories, but without digging deeper into the research. Could you bring people up to speed a little maybe with what we now know, what we've discovered in just the last few months? <laughs> yeah, so unfortunately for myself in prepping for this uh, for this podcast, I, I scrolled through my 
Twitter feed. And it's basically just been a who's who of terrible environmental <laughs> developments over the past six weeks. Um, and yeah, I guess there was a very large cover story um, on The Economist recently, or sort of a major leader, about the Greenland ice sheet. So a study has been published showing that uh, over the course of 2019, it lost the equivalent of a million tons of ice every minute. And that's now sort of a rate at which it will never be replenished by new ice and snow. That's been coupled with, you know, the hottest ever measured temperature in Death Valley, 54 and a half degrees Celsius, the collapse of the last intact ice shelf in Canada, we're at a 95% loss of old sea ice in the Arctic. The largest tropical wetland system in the world has had triple the fires over last year. You know, Siberia has hit nearly 40 degrees Celsius. Um, it's a litany of unbelievably catastrophic events over the past few months that have kind of been lost, including those that involve a really tragic loss of human life. So over the past month, about 100 people have died in Pakistan due to um, record rainfalls and flooding. Just been a terrible time. Um, for the climate and people around the world. And unfortunately, a lot of that has, has been missed, I think. I mean, quite understandably. What we've been hearing from Adrienne, and indeed from other sources, is a rather bleak picture. A worsening ecological crisis, while the dominant political and economic forces in the rich industrial states refuse to take action. If indeed, they're not making the situation worse. That raises the further question of what the left can do in the face of this seemingly impending catastrophe. The slogan of the Green New Deal has taken on wide currency in recent years and it's become more than a slogan. It's become a well-thought-out, well-structured and well-articulated blueprint for ecological change that could be combined with progressive and socialist reforms. It's been taken up by a number of parties and politicians, including Jeremy Corbyn in Britain and Bernie Sanders in the United States. So we're now going to hear two clips from Corbyn and from Sanders, where they articulate their vision of the Green New Deal. Listen to the science. The science says this is an emergency. But an emergency does not have to be a catastrophe. We could use it as an opportunity to reprogram our whole economy. So it works in the interests of both people and of our planet. But to make that happen, we need a government that doesn't just sit back and leave all the major decisions about our lives to the mystery of market forces. In short, we need a Labour government that's prepared to put public investment into renewable energy on a massive scale. We're talking about nothing less than a green industrial revolution. And that's what Labour is proposing. Climate change is the existential threat to our planet, and we are seeing it with our own eyes right now. We're seeing it in California and Oregon. We're seeing it in the state of Washington. Last year, we saw it in Australia. We see it in heat waves in Europe. We need to take on the fossil fuel industry. We need to have the courage to tell the oil companies and the gas companies and the coal companies that their short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet, We need the moral clarity to make it clear that we have the responsibility to make sure that our children and grandchildren and future generations have a planet that is healthy and is habitable. Nothing more basic than that. 
There was a very good book about it written last year by Anne Pettifor uh, called The Case for the Green New Deal. And she made the argument that there were actually two different versions, two different conceptions of the Green New Deal that had developed along separate tracks in Britain and in the US. And she argued there was a different focus between them, that the, the US version was quite particular to the American context, whereas the British version, which she had been involved with from its early stages, had more of an international focus and more international perspective. Would you agree with her on those points? I think there's an interesting insight there. I mean, Anne, obviously, being involved in the original 2008 drafting of the UK Green New Deal, would recognise that they sort of identified, I think, a slightly different set of problems to what the US Green New Deal addresses. So in 2008, the Green New Deal group convened out of the New Economics Foundation was looking at what they saw as a triple threat of sort of the climate crisis, um, what they called the credit crunch, so the sort of financial crisis of 2008, as well as um, projections about energy shortages globally as a result of advancing peak oil, which actually you know, hasn't really come to fruition due to innovations in, in the oil and gas industry, particularly fracking and, and liquefied natural gas. And so I think what they, what they identified as those three problems did lend itself, I think, inherently to a more, I guess, global perspective insofar as energy shortages and peak oil demand, that's an inherently global issue. And they saw that as a threat to everyone. But they also identified, I think, a source of the UK's sort of most significant contribution to climate injustice globally, which was its role as a seat of financial power. So the UK, the city of London, as a, as a major site of financial flows, global insurance, particularly with Lloyds of London, which is a leading sort of project insurer, without which things like a natural gas plant or a mine can't go ahead. Um, all of these things have brought huge profitability to the city of London. And they also, you know, sort of wrought havoc on the rest of the world. And so there was, I suppose, an internationalist perspective there insofar as they recognize, you know, that this one part of our economic system has tremendous outsized impacts globally. And they did look at things like the global taxation system, international financial flows, capital controls, giving countries the means to sort of enact control over their own domestic economies rather than sort of risking capital flight and all of these things that are raised as a specter when countries in the global south suggest that they might try and decarbonize. Whereas in the US, which I guess drew inspiration from that, there is, I suppose, a more, more national focus in tone. Partly, I think, that comes down to some constraints related to the fact that it actually proposed, you know, legislation. It was a it was a you know resolution in the House. And I think there are certain constraints that come with that. So it had a more domestic focus. And I think, you know, a, a valid criticism is to say that um, it's focused on, I think there are lines about, you know, the U.S. becoming a global leader in decarbonization and clean energy and all these things that has sort of the economic nationalist tone. And the frontline communities that the motion identified, for example, tend to be people on the domestic front lines. That said, I think where they have the scope to do so, so from the be it resolved section of, of the resolution, there is an acknowledgement of sort of international impacts and, and distributions there. And again, I think whenever we talk about the Green New Deal, it's such a, as you say, you use the word slogan. And, you know, I think in some ways that's fair because it does mean so many things to so many people. In the UK as well, I would add a third I would add a third sort of Green New Deal to this, which is that that was sort of campaigned on within the Labour Party and, and adopted to some extent in the recent manifesto. 
And what all three of these sort of Green New Deals had in common from an international perspective was the idea of international financing and and technology transfers. And this is where I think there's a really legitimate criticism of all sort of Green New Deal proposals, which is, you know, that's as far as our collective imagination has reached in a lot of respects for what the Green New Deal means internationally. So I think going forward, there's a lot of interesting work being done by a number of academics in the UK, for example, on the idea of a, of a reparations framework as opposed to just technology transfers. So actually materially atoning for the impacts of colonialism, as well as for, you know, outsized contributions to global carbon emissions and environmental degradation. And that, I think, is sort of the next frontier that the GND needs to pursue if it's going to be a genuinely sort of internationalist project. You might have seen a recent interview with Adam Tooze, the historian, where he was discussing the impact of the pandemic on world politics and the world economy in general. But in the course of that interview, he addressed a point to that section of the left that has begun to organise around the idea of the Green New Deal. And he argued that there was a gap in their thinking that in Britain, in the US in particular, they hadn't identified potential allies on the side of business, on the side of capital who might have a shared interest in policies for decarbonisation. And according to Tews, that was necessary if you were going to, if you like, divide the side of capital so that there would be the people determined to cling on to the status quo and deploying all the resources in defence of that. But on the other hand, elements within capital who could see uh, an interest in their part in bringing about these changes. So obviously that's a, a particular vision of how political and economic change might come, come about on the part of Tews. I was wondering what you made of that. Yeah, that was a really interesting one. And I think, um, I think again, it comes down to some extent to the question of how do we conceive of the Green New Deal? How do we define it? And what is its purpose, really? So is its purpose to drive decarbonization or is its purpose something much broader than that? And I would argue it it's the latter. So in that interview, I think, you know, he talks about the fact that you know, he's not necessarily in favor of the Davos style business led climate agenda, but that it's necessary for decarbonization. And I think I would I would approach that with a bit of skepticism only insofar as I think there is a lot of energy and agitation on the part of um, finance, for example, a lot of business and and, you know, in the U.S. military, for example, on the urgency of decarbonization. I think that agenda does exist in the spaces he's identifying, and we don't really need to be pushing to get them to care about decarbonization. Any sound financial institution will know, you know, that it needs to care about that if it doesn't want billions of its assets to just go up in smoke. The same goes for the U.S. military, which sees it as a massive national security threat. I think the more important question there is not, you know, how do we get people to care about decarbonizing? It's, you know, how fast and crucially, you know, through what shape, you know, how are we decarbonizing? Who is it going to benefit and how quickly will we do it? And I think that's where the Green New Deal doesn't necessarily need to concede to business interests or, you know, some of the groups he identifies not because they're not powerful groups, and he's absolutely right that they have to be confronted um, or brought on side, but because I think the Green New Deal as a project and as an idea has to be one that is pushing the boundaries of what we think should be done and has to be championing the social and economic justice side of things. Otherwise, we're just getting back sort of to the era in which environmental politics was exactly that. It was environmental, it was siloed, and it was kept separate 
from these other issues, which are inherently part of the same problem. And so, yes, you know, the Green New Deal, as he identifies, has been set up in a lot of ways to, to pick a fight, I think, with everyone with power, as I think how he describes it. And that's absolutely true. But I think that's kind of its purpose. So the Biden campaign is a good example of, of what the outcome of that can be. So he's taken the elements of it that will be amenable to business, which is, you know, the fiscal stimulus side of it, the sort of green investment side of it. It's hard to get anyone to say no to that, really, if you're in sort of the renewable energy community, for example. But I think it's really important to have a movement that is still out there that's shouting, you know, that's not enough. This has to be done in a way that pursues racial justice. It has to be done with a global perspective and all of those things that go alongside with it. And I think you risk losing that if you focus too much on on coalitions with those who already have power. I think it can serve both. And yeah, I spent a lot of time in my previous job, a couple of years sort of working within the financial sector, lobbying groups there to care about climate, and all of them already do. What they don't pay as much attention to and what they need to pay attention to and what the Green New Deal serves is the justice side of things um, and the social and economic side of it. And I think that is a project that it needs to continue pursuing. Going back to the the long-term fallout from the pandemic in terms of economic power, would you say we have a, a picture now of which economic forces are going to be coming out of the pandemic strengthened or weakened and which kind of vested interests, I, I believe you've referred to them as climate adversaries, um, <laughs> are, are, are going to be in a stronger position or a weaker position coming out of this crisis? Yeah, so this has been a really interesting one um, for me to watch throughout this. And I guess the first one would be, if we're looking at people who may have taken a hit, um, you can look at the fossil fuel industry, which was already taking a hit prior to COVID. There was sort of an oil price shock related to OPEC. But since then, you know, we've seen huge developments like Exxon has dropped out of the Dow Jones Industrial Index, for example, for the first time in a century. If you look at the S&P 500 index, uh, fossil fuels now are sort of the smallest component of that, again, for the first time. And we've also seen companies like BP and Shell enact massive write downs of their fossil fuel assets on the scale of, you know, tens of billions of dollars. So on the one hand, there's sort of some cause for optimism there, with some scientists suggesting maybe this could bring us forward to what they call peak oil demand. So maybe the world will never have as much oil demand as we had in 2019 ever again, which would be pretty huge. But at the same time, I think we're seeing a lot of um, innovation on the side of fossil fuel majors. So groups like BP, who've sort of started to brand themselves as climate progressive, they've become very clever in using things like their low carbon transition fund to invest in alternative uses for fossil fuels, like plastics or like animal feed and things like that. And and that's sort of getting a free pass. And at the same time, a number of other companies have been lobbying, um, for example, in trade negotiations for Kenya, which has been quite progressive on its rules related to plastics, to drop those regulations so that we can sort of redirect fossil fuel production away from energy and into alternatives like plastics and petrochemicals. So that I think will be a new sort of frontier on which we have to fight that industry. The second group that I think is probably the most interesting one to come out of this crisis is the asset management industry and particularly sort of the big players there. So they've had a really good crisis. (laughs) Um, We've seen record inflows to ETFs, which are exchange traded funds, sort of a a kind of pooled investment vehicle, and particularly to things called ESG ETFs. So that's 
funds that invest with sort of an environmental and a social conscience, if you will. But the problem is those are overwhelmingly provided by just a couple of players, sort of the Black Rocks and the vanguards of the world. And so they're coming out of this having hugely increased assets and power. And so that, I think, is going to be sort of a huge adversary going forward insofar as a couple of asset managers increasingly have an incredible degree of sway over the direction of the wider economy. BlackRock has close to $7 trillion in assets, which is you know, an unfathomably huge number. And not only do they have direction setting power over the economy through sort of capital allocation, but increasingly, you know, they have indirect and direct political sway because they're becoming so big. So BlackRock, for example, was given the role of deciding which assets to purchase in the Federal Reserve's asset purchase program. It's also been invited to advise on EU sustainability rules, again, because it's seen as something that's so big and with such a unique expertise that it has to be included. And it doesn't have a great record on the climate front. And we're looking at a system in which that's an incredibly undemocratic progression. So that's sort of where where I'm focusing as we come out of of COVID and looking at, you know, who has amassed a massive amount of power out of this crisis. And and it's those kinds of groups. I think it's fair to say that on the Anglo-American left, at least, there was a general feeling of deflation and demoralisation after the events of the last year, where going into 2019, you had two politicians, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, who appeared to have the possibility of winning an election and exercising power. And when they did stand for election, they put forward, as part of their platform, quite an advanced environmental programme, perhaps not advanced in terms of what actually needs to be done, but certainly compared with any programme that's been put forward by a party or a politician with the potential of leading a government in one of the major industrial capitalist states. Perhaps the Labour programme in 2019 and the Bernie Sanders platform earlier this year were the most advanced of their kind that have been put forward. And yet both of them were defeated. Both of them fell short. And since then, we've seen the politicians that are filling the left of centre space in those countries. Uh, Joe Biden, Keir Starmer, they have a very different political approach and political methodology. So I wanted to ask you, would you say you share in that general feeling of disappointment, deflation, demoralisation, or do you think there are grounds for optimism? Is it okay if I say both? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think... Um, I think absolutely there's a very understandable deflation that's come from what frankly was a shockingly successful wave of very left-wing sort of representation in mainstream political parties in the UK and US. I think what's important to remember in this is, you know, just how young those projects were, both the Corbyn Project and, and sort of Bernie Sanders as a major political contender. And the fact that, you know, there's a really good article written about this by someone named Christine Berry about the Corbyn Project and the fact that, you know, it was it was disorganized and chaotic enough that it's kind of a miracle that it ever became, you know, what it did. So on the one hand, you know, we can be deflated insofar as that was, you know, a resounding loss on both sides of the Atlantic. But politically, you know, this was never going to be a short-term change. It's about sort of long-term organizing and movement building. And when it comes to the climate perspective, particularly, I do see grounds for optimism, not because I think that Starmer is a climate radical in any sense, but I do think, you know, the messaging has cut through in a way that was, that has been surprising to me. So the government's own figures um, in the UK this year shows, you know, record high levels 
a concern in the UK for for climate change as a really important issue in the midst of you know these questions were delivered in the midst of the pandemic. So you know you've got eighty percent of the population expressing strong concern, or I think it was very or fairly concerned about, you know, this crisis. And in the US, you know, while Biden is hardly on the left um, of that party, he hasn't shied away from making climate a really, really important part of the platform and what he's running on and how he's sort of differentiating himself from, you know, the Trump program. So I think there are some, some grounds for optimism. That said, I think it will be an incredibly, incredibly difficult a uh, few years ahead to sort of regain a lot of the ground that was lost. But again, I think to feel like this is a resounding defeat forever would be to lose sight of the context that, you know, this was just the beginning of a project that will take a long time to build. That feeds in, I think, into the last question that I wanted to ask you, which is a wider point about the politics of the environmental crisis, um, not just in Britain or the US, but generally, it feels as if there's a big discrepancy between, on the one hand, the urgency of the time horizon of the climate crisis and the talk about 2030 as being a hard deadline that has to be addressed and has to be met. And on the other hand, the strength or rather the weakness of the political forces that are pushing for the kind of radical structural change that would be needed. It feels as if we need radical change, but running out of time for it. And we don't have the time that's needed to cohere those forces and and bring them into position where they can challenge for power. I think that's a fairly common way of looking at the situation that we're in. So in that framework, I wanted to ask you, how do you see the environmental politics of the next decade or more panning out? Yeah, this is a really interesting and and challenging one. And I wish that I had sort of all the answers on it. I don't think anyone does, unfortunately. I think there's probably you know, when it comes to sort of party politics and sort of being in positions of actual political and legislative power, probably, you know, those opportunities will be quite limited over the next decade. So then the question is, you know, what what do you turn to? And I think something that will be incredibly important over the coming decade will be sort of small scale organizing, sort of community level. In the UK, you know, you can look at local council sort of trialing GND type policies that, you know, when the time comes for us to potentially take seats of power again through elections, for example, you know, you can gesture to a project that has been delivered and say, hey, look, we did this, it worked. And that gives you sort of the clout to push for those changes at sort of the national level. You know, Right to Buy is a really good example of this in the UK. You know, it was trialed uh, I think in in the borough of Wandsworth, for a period prior to it being adopted as as national legislation, it's because they could take a small example and point to it and say, "Hey, this did what we wanted it to," and that ended up, you know, as we would all know, being an incredibly important economic policy shift in the Thatcher era, and that you know has spillover effects to this day. So I think that's one part of it, and the other for me will be about looking beyond climate as an insulated issue and really looking at broad sort of social movement and and coalition building with other movements. So Black Lives Matter is a really good example of this. I think that's a social movement that has seen, you know, unprecedented success in a lot of respects in terms of visibility and some of the wins and the longevity of the support and, you know, not sort of dying out as far as protests go, as far as urgency and, and as far as the strength of the demands goes. And I think, you know, they've done a really excellent job, that movement of having a very clear 
single message, Black Lives Matter, and pairing that with really specific demands on which they don't concede. So that's, I think, a lesson for the climate movement, where often I think we've been a bit more nebulous in what we demand. But the other will be sort of connecting the climate movement to those issues. So not saying, you know, there are links between racism and the climate crisis, but saying, you know, these are products of the same system. And if Black lives really do matter, then we will tackle climate change because those are the lives that are on the front lines of climate environmental breakdown. And so really building the recognition that these are movements that have to go together and building much closer ties and supports, you know, between the climate movement and other social movements. I think coalition building will be a huge part of the project going forward and really moving climate away from an insular space and into something that is much more widely connected to broader social change. Thanks to Adrienne Buller for joining us for that discussion. I still contained a dash of optimism amidst the gloom that envelops the subject of climate change. And if you want to know more about Adrienne's views on that subject, I'd recommend reading some of the articles that she's written for a number of publications, including Jacobin. <laughs>